So what we're going to do now is we're going to open up the Bible together. Um, so if you have a Bible with you or maybe on your phone, if you want to find uh, Titus, uh, which is towards the end of your New Testament, just a really short letter, uh, only a few chapters long, Titus chapter 2, uh, and we're going to read a few verses from there, and Ben is going to do it on a video for us, so you'll be able to watch that now. For the grace of God has appeared to us that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Okay, welcome back, everyone. I hope all our technology is working all right. This morning, um, we're filming down here in the basement of the Vonkirk, and we have lots of squares marked out on the floor to make sure we keep our social distancing. So it's like playing a massive game of Pac-Man down here. It's a lot of fun. Um, so anyway, let's get into the word today. When we consider the, the future, and I don't mean the immediate future as in what's going to happen next week or what's going to happen after coronavirus, but I mean the distant future of what's going to happen in, throughout the rest of the course of human history, of how the world's going to end, of what the future is going to look like. There are three stories, three ways of understanding what the future of the world, how things are going to pan out, that people would popularly kind of talk about in the world around us. The first will be the idea of utopia, that there's this wonderful, perfect future that awaits us, that we can all make the world a better place. This is kind of the, the world of John Lennon, the, the, the imagined world, a world where there's no war, where there's no sickness, where everybody loves one another, a world of perfect peace and harmony, utopia. Or the opposite of utopia is obviously dis dystopia, the idea that all, all our actions, all our activities, all they really do is just make the world a worse place, that humanity is slowly suffocating creation, that little by little we're just making the world worse, that even the coronavirus is just the fruit of how as humankind we've, we've destroyed the world around us, where we've taken it for granted, where we've used it harmfully for our own purposes. And where the world is going to is things are just going to get worse and worse and worse. This is the world that you'd see depicted in books like George Orwell's 1984 or zombie films and TV shows, which I love, like The Walking Dead. It's like everything is just going to seize up into this horrible mess, dystopia. But perhaps the most common, the most prevalent idea that we would talk about is the idea of progressivism, that by our actions, little by little, we can make the world a, a better place. Not necessarily a perfect place, but if we all play our part, that over time, the world will slowly get better and better, that humanity can somehow fix the world around us. 
But as believers in Jesus, we believe ultimately, the, ultimately that there is one true story that Ben was reading to us just a few moments ago, that the grace of God has appeared to us, that Jesus has come, and that one day he will come again. Our blessed hope, Jesus will return. And all the stories above the utopia, the dystopia, the progressivism, they're not necessarily bad, but they have the wrong focus. They're all focused on humanity and what we can do positively or negatively to the world. But in the Jesus story, you find that there is a future utopia that awaits us, a perfect world, but it's the domain of Jesus, not the domain of John Lennon. And it says in John 14 that he's already gone there to prepare it for us. He's already making this perfect utopia for us to enjoy forever. Also in the Jesus story, we realize that the world is a broken place because it's full of people like me and you, of fallen sinful people who, who sometimes hurt people, who break things, who don't treat God's creation as we should do. We don't, we don't treat each other as we should do. But we believe that Jesus can and will one day redeem and restore his creation. That he will fix and already is fixing everything that's broken. And also we believe that God as well, he's progressively at work. That he uses human beings, he uses us to redeem, to restore, to renew. That he sent us here, even to this city. He sent us to Amsterdam to bring about a work of renewal, of progressively serving and loving our city and the world around us. But ultimately, it's, it's his work. It's not the Barack Obama, yes, we can. It's yes, he can. He's progressively making the world a better place through his church, through his people. And this Jesus story of the future is, I guess in one way you could imagine it as uh, the language that you'd find in, in Lord of the Rings, in the third book where it talks about the return of the king. That's one way to describe how the end will play out for humanity, that our king is coming back, our blessed hope will return. But the Bible also uses quite rich, evocative, intimate language to describe Jesus' return. It talks in Matthew 25 about the return of the bridegroom, that a bridegroom is coming back for his bride, for his people. In Revelation 19, it talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb, but the language is of, of like a royal wedding, this great, huge banquet, a time of celebration, of feasting, of family, of festivity, of fellowship, the best party you've ever been to. And you get both this regal, majestic language, the return of the king, but at the same time, it's incredibly intimate that the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns, 
but he's also returning as a, as a bridegroom. That the king is coming back to bring justice and to make all things new, but he's also coming back to bring a fulfillment, a, a consummation to fulfill for humanity our deep longing for intimacy. He's going to one day fulfill that, consummate that forever. And Jesus wants you to see him both as your Lord and Saviour, but also as someone that you can know richly, deeply. Someone that you can know intimately. When we talk about God, we talk about God in transcendent terms. We talk about his transcendence, but also his imminence. God is completely other and different from us. He's a holy, perfect God. But also in Jesus Christ, he's come near to us. And as believers in Jesus, we're going to talk about it next week on the next part of the creed. We have his Holy Spirit within us. That Jesus is, has come near to us. And all around us in the world, we find this desire for both transcendence and imminence. A desire for both otherness and nearness, for kingship and intimacy. And these define so much of of human activity, about how everyone around us, everyone in this city, how they go about life, is that on one hand we idolise celebrities and fame. All the time we're creating idols for ourselves, things for us to worship, money, things that we fix our eyes on that, that to try and pull us out of where we are now and give us some transcendent glimpse of hope or glory. But at the same time, as well as this desire for transcendence, we seek Intimacy. Intimacy. Even sexual intimacy. And that's not a bad thing at all. The Bible speaks very positively when it comes, when it comes to sex. But ultimately, what we find in Jesus Christ is a divine intimacy that surpasses all of that. And the message of our age, the heartbeat of our city... The temptation all around us is to embrace the immediate but lesser intimacy that's on offer to us. All the time there's a temptation to get drawn into small moments of intimacy that seem fulfilling, that seem pleasing, but ultimately don't fulfill. Often leave us feeling empty, even used, hurt. But it says in Romans 8 that all of creation, not just humanity, but all of creation is waiting, is longing. Because inside all of us, we have this longing for intimacy. But where it's ultimately consummated, where it's fulfilled, where it's satisfied, is in Jesus. And one day he will come again as our bridegroom. That's why the Bible uses such intimate language. And it's not trying to tell us that Jesus' relationship with us is a bit like a marriage. It's not trying to use that as a kind of a, a picture. It's actually the other way around. That marriage is 
just a bit like a, a hint of the wonderful intimacy that you can have with Jesus. That there's something fuller and deeper and more wonderful that Jesus is one day coming back as his bridegroom to win you to himself forever, to have you so that you can know perfect, wonderful fulfillment. Everything that our world seeks to offer us now but can't deliver on, Jesus will one day deliver on. And even now, you can know as a follower of Jesus, a wonderful intimacy, a relationship with God. With his, God is our Father, a perfect Father. And there's such wonderful intimacy we can have with him there. And you might think, why does any of this matter? Can't I just live now? Can't I just have intimacy now? And this idea of, as Aaron was reading about earlier, which is what we're talking about today, of Jesus returning to judge the living and the dead. So what, if you hadn't guessed, that's what we've been talking about. Jesus coming back to judge the living and the dead. Why does any of that matter? Surely what Christians call the end times is really of no Relevance. That's just for crazy Christians who like maps and codes and timelines. And there is a lot of bad teaching out there. If you go onto Google or YouTube, the other bits of YouTube, this is a good bit of YouTube, you'll find all sorts of crazy theories. Um, people trying to predict when Jesus is going to return, even though the Bible is really clear that no one knows. And yet people st still try and predict all the time. But what the Bible does say is that the ending of this story, the story of all humanity, of all creation, the ending of the story matters, that it's important. That Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians that he, he does not want us to be uninformed about the coming of the Lord. To put that positively, he wants us to be informed, to know about what's going to happen. It's important to know that at the end... God will start a new beginning. That he will bring healing and peace by uniting himself to creation through his son, through Jesus Christ. That the consummation of all things will take place. That Jesus will bring justice and he will return as our judge to bring judgment. Now that's often, this part of the creed is often the silent bit. And Aaron did a brilliant job reading it earlier, but it's often the bit of the creed that we, we kind of skim over, that we try and say it as quietly and softly as we can, that Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. We don't like to talk about that so much. So what, what is judgment? Well, really it's God establishing what is right what is right, that Jesus will come again to put the world to right. And often we can talk about the judgment of God in, in cold, forensic terms. And we can imagine a, a, a grumpy old man in a white wig and a gown with a gavel judging everybody in a cold, harsh way. But God isn't cold-hearted. God's a father who weeps over the brokenness of his creation, who weeps over the 
pain and the suffering and the injustice in our world. A God with a burning passion for what is right. A burning passion for how he planned the world to work. His perfect plan for what life and human flourishing should look like. And we can worry about God being a God of judgment. As Christians, we can find that a difficult concept to get our head around. But actually, what should concern us, what should worry us, is injustice. That's the thing that should keep us awake at night. Who will put an end to the abuse that we see around us? The suffering, the exploitation. Who's, who's going to fix that? That's the, the, the thing that can concern us. Who's going to bring a judgment to bear? Because there should be justice. The evil should be called out. That those who've done horrific wrong should be punished. And the answer is that Jesus will put an end to all the abuse, all the suffering, all the injustice. That he will bring his perfect justice to bear. Which raises another question for us. You may be watching this at home. Of Should we, should we fear judgment? We read those words, Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. We think, well, what does that mean for me? And we're very good at calling out injustice and evil in other people. We're very good at ranting and raving on social media about everything we see that's wrong around us. But what about the evil in our own hearts? The sin, the failings in our own soul? None of us are perfect. All of us, if we're really honest with ourselves, if we really look beneath the surface, the, if we look beyond the Instagram veneer of our lives and peel back the layers, we see the brokenness inside of each of us. So should we fear judgment? As we Ben read to the start at the start from Titus, the fact that Jesus is coming back isn't something to bring about a fear in us, but it's our blessed hope that the king is coming back, that the bridegroom is coming to be finally, once and all, united with his bride, his church, with you. Yes, Jesus is our judge. He is our judge. But he is also our Advocate, that the only one who could be against us is the one who is for us. It says in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? That yes, our sin is horrid and deserves judgment, but it says in Colossians 2, the record of debt that stands against us has been cancelled, that Jesus took the punishment that we deserved upon himself. And when it comes to other people, on our friends and family who don't know Jesus, maybe you're watching this and you're not a follower of Jesus, our goal today isn't to call down judgment on you. We want to warn you. But what we want to proclaim to you is what the Bible calls 
good news of great joy. That one day we'll have perfect intimacy, the thing that we've been longing for all our lives. You can have it with God. That one day God will bring about justice, but also right now you can know perfect righteousness with God. You've been made just. You've been made right before God if you accept Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. That you can know perfect relationship, intimacy with your Father in heaven even now. As a follower of Jesus, as we'll talk about next time, that the Holy Spirit floods our lives. and We can know our God and Saviour. I'm going to stand and pray now and then the band are going to come and lead us in a couple of songs of worship. Jesus, we thank you so much just for your phenomenal love for us. We thank you for this wonderful truth that isn't designed to bring fear but is designed to reassure us that you will come again, that you will come to put the world to rights that you will come to bring all of creation back into perfect intimacy with you. And all the longing and desire around us, even in our own hearts, today, right now, we want to fix it all on you. We want to worship you as our Lord and Saviour and know your presence, your nearness, is our intimate, loving Father. Thank you, Jesus, for all you've done for us.